on the recorder, and then we will begin to have our discussion on um, Revelation, our third lesson tonight. And so, excuse me, um, <clears throat> our goals for the study of Revelation, again, just for review, we want to hear and see, we want to see and hear Jesus. This is a revelation from Jesus, which God gave him to share with his servants what must soon take place. That's the first words of the, of the book. We want to be blessed by what we learn. We don't want to be frightened by revelation. We want to be blessed by it. So that's our goal. We want to long for Jesus' return even more. John, after writing the whole thing, he finishes with, um, even so, Lord, quickly come. And so whatever John understood about the book of Revelation, it made him want Jesus to come even sooner. So I want that too. And then uh, <clears throat> that's our goals. And so tonight we're going to talk about the letter to Ephesus. And so the outline is, uh, first of all, the seven letters to the seven churches. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. And, and Jesus has appeared to, to John and said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. And then Jesus specifically lists the seven churches in near the end of chapter 1 to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Philadelphia, and La uh, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so there's seven churches, and in the world they are all sort of in the province of Asia, which is like modern-day Turkey. So if you were looking on a map of the world, you'd see <coughs> Spain and Portugal, you know, the Gibraltar, when the Mediterranean Sea moving from left to right, and then you cross and you see Italy is the big boot that comes down, right, in the Mediterranean, and then the next peninsulas is Greek, and all these little Greek islands, and then the next section, the Mediterranean Sea ends. Above that, where it ends, is the province of Asia, where these churches are. Why do you think it is that Jesus would write a letter to these seven churches? Why does he not include the church in Jerusalem or the church in, uh, where are some other places or churches? There's a church in Cyprus, there's a church in Antioch. Remember, Antioch was the first church that, uh, where we were referred to as Christians, I think. And there's a church in Galatia, Galatians. It's written to them, the Philippians, Philippi, that's one of the churches, but that's not one of these seven churches. What might be, do you think, an explanation for why there's these seven churches? Anyone ever have a thought about that? Brother John? I think maybe he chose them because they seem to be representative of churches from from time immemorial and the, and the problems that can come into those churches or the blessings that can come. So I think that um, that makes sense, right? That they're somehow representative. There's, um, it can't be that Jesus only cares about these seven. 
And when John sees Jesus, he sees him with seven stars in his hand, and he's walking among seven golden lampstands. And at the end of chapter one, Jesus says, the meaning of the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Angel is the word um, angelos, which could mean and sometimes means in the Bible messenger. And sometimes it means a divine messenger. And you have to kind of figure it out from context because there isn't any difference between and the angel appeared to Mary, that's angelos, and Paul sent the message through an angelos, through a messenger. So the, the word can mean just messenger. So some would maybe think that the seven uh, messengers, the seven angels of the seven churches could be the pastors of the churches. And who, who knows? <clears throat> but Jesus says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. And so this symbol that Jesus walks around, John saw Jesus walking around in a place where there was seven lampstands, and Jesus is milling around, moving around in this place where there are seven representatives of his church in the world, and he holds in his hand the messengers to those churches. That's pretty profound thinking, really, profound image. I suppose you could say there's seven continents. Are there seven continents? Is that what, how many continents are there? Seven? Seven, seven oceans. Seven seas, right? The seven seas, seven continents. It's hard for me to believe that Antarctica deserves a, a church. Uh, I don't even, I'm not that that doesn't either. It's just hard to believe that there's a, a church in the continent of Antarctica that corresponds with the same amount of um, population as the church in Asia, for example, right? I mean, the, the number of persons, so I don't think it's the seven continents, but somehow, like John Cop said, it's the, it must be, it must therefore be representative. It can't be just these guys that Jesus cares about. Which is also sort of a lesson for us on the book of Revelation in general that the number seven might be representative in a lot of cases, not necessarily numerative. Not, it's, always, it's not necessarily a list as much as it is a completion or a representation. So assuming that's the case, that there's um, some representation, then what Jesus tells John to do is to write on a scroll what you see and send it to these churches and he explains specifically, I'm paying attention to them. I got them in my hand, and I'm walking amongst their lampstands. So he's aware. He's not off managing the universe and think, oh, that's right, Tuesday afternoon, I got to think about the churches at 3 o'clock. It's not like that. He's, he's intimately and continuously um, involved with and thinking about us as his people on earth today. And he has messages to, this, to them. And so chapter 2 is the beginning of these seven letters, right? And he says, to the church in Ephesus, right? And so that's his first a letter. And so I want us to consider tonight, what is the content of this letter to Ephesus? And what might it be saying to us? If it's true, 
since it's true that we are represented by these seven churches in some way, then there's a couple possibilities. And one possibility is that in some way, every one of the seven churches represents us, right? We might have an element of that in us. So in some ways, each one of them could be us. That's at least something we should consider. But in some ways, there could be parts that don't apply to us because it might not represent us entirely. So it's, it requires, and this is what Jesus also says to each of the churches, let the, those who hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we want to hear what Jesus is saying to us about these churches. Okay? So to the angel in the church, or the angel of the church in Ephesus write, in the first part, now almost all the letters start with a description of Jesus. And so these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And as we just saw at the end of chapter one, Jesus interprets what those symbols are. We don't have to guess. What does the seven stars refer to? Remember? The angels of the seven churches, the messengers, whatever that is. I don't think it's the pastor, but maybe. And then, and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. So first of all, as a church receiving this letter, um, and I may have intimated a little bit, but what does that, what does that mean to you to think that Jesus is, he wants us to realize he's holding these stars and walking among the lampstands? What, what, what? Um, what difference does that make to you? Well, to me, and maybe this is <laughs> an over symbolism, but because we are indwelt, I think to me it's a reminder that he is with us. He, he he is here, you know, and that sometimes, you know, realizing that you're in the presence of God when you come, when you are someplace, uh, I don't know, that heightens receptivity, I think. Yeah, that he's here. Hey, Joe, I overdid the thermostat if you want to reset it, man. People are getting sleepy eyes, <laughs> myself included. So what Phil said is that Jesus is here. Have you thought about the fact that, in a sense, Jesus walked around our church this morning and contemplated, hmm, I wonder why there's a big empty section in that part of the church, or I noticed it this morning, the, the big hole where Miller's used to sit, <laughs> and... Um, you know, what is he, he's intimately aware of and thinking about his churches everywhere. There's no, there's no part of his people today that he's not paying attention to. Or there's nobody so remote, so far away that he doesn't care. If the stars refer in some ways to the leaders, that's a super huge comfort too, right? To, to be a leader 
in his church and to know that he's holding us as leaders in his hand. I don't know if it's not that. I don't know. I didn't know that there's an angel assigned to us as a church, maybe. But either way, there's an invisible realm we don't realize. And if if I'm to understand the scriptures, if God opened our eyes, we would see angelic creatures here right now. And they they long to look into these things. And so the world is full of invisible creatures, not in a scary, ghosty way, but in a divine, powerful way. And so that's interesting. Any other thoughts about this introduction? Donna? Well, I was thinking similar to what Phil was saying, but that Jesus has intimate knowledge of these churches. He's got the stars in his hand, so he sees them and knows exactly what's there. And he's also walking there. It brings to mind the news when there's some disaster somewhere and the governor or somebody goes and walks among the stuff and looks that that he cares about it enough to go and see what's there and see what needs to be done so that he is with us and he knows intimately exactly what's going on with these churches. Yeah, that is an interesting and encouraging aspect when a leader does take an opportunity to do the photo op at the hurricane scene, right? It, it, it works because people do want to know that their leaders know firsthand how bad it is and what it smells like. And when a leader won't do that, it's discouraging. So, okay. Well, moving on, starting at verse 2, Jesus is saying, he's dictating this letter. This is not John, right? This is Jesus dictating the letter. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. And that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So two questions you can answer either or both at the same time. What does this mean and in what ways might that apply to our church? So what do you think he's saying? What does this mean for us? And in what ways have you seen God doing this in our midst? Or is this us? Is this representing us? Yes or no? What do you think? Anybody have any? I had a note that I wrote a long time ago in regard to the wicked men. In the book of Ephesus, Paul warned them to be on the lookout for imposters. And this is coming later, so they were doing that. They were holding the line to some degree. And Jesus says, I know that. I see that. I've told you that you are warned to stand true. You've checked these prophets, and you're doing okay there. So that's kind of neat. In it, of the seven churches, Ephesus is the one most well known in the rest of Scripture. There's a book written to the Ephesians. 
There's the meeting between Paul and the Ephesian elders on his missionary journeys when he only meets them at the shoreline and he says, I'll never see you again. Remember how they wept on each other's shoulders and the um, Luke writing says, well, after we had torn ourselves away from them, we continued on the journey. And, and so there was very many difficult things. And in that, Paul warns them that among your own flock will come uh, ferocious wolves that would consume the sheep. And so he warns them against false teachers. And, and so there's a lot of content that we know about Ephesus that we don't know about Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, the other ones at all. The second most famous one might be Laodicea because I think the book of Colossians refers to you read the letter to the Laodicean church also. So that's about all we really get as a direct story. So Ephesus is kind of famous in the Bible, right? So we know that. And they do, they have been warned to watch out for false teachers. And according to Jesus, they found them. He found them out, right? Other thoughts about this meaning and Sue? I was noticing the word um, tolerate. And of course, we know right now tolerance is a huge issue. And I, and I see that <coughs> he says, you have persevered and endured hardships. And, I, and I'm thinking <coughs> that because they didn't tolerate wicked people, they went through hardships and didn't grow weary. And we have to remember that in this day. Yeah, whether or not their world canceled them or not is a good question, but it sure feels like that's gonna happen to us. And for us to say things like, we will not tolerate this kind of wickedness is really a super high canceling statement, a high likelihood of our culture canceling us. And so as our culture continues to rebel against God and seems to be moving in that direction, I think that this will be an increasingly difficult thing to, to hold, and it'll cost us, and it'll, it'll tire us out, and we'll be, it will be something that requires, like Jesus says in verse 3, perseverance and endured hardships and have not grown weary. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to go through it once, but to do it over and over and over and endure the hardship of the constant barrage to soften our position. It's interesting to me that Jesus says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. Man, that is a really harsh way to say it. I, if, I think that a PR agent would have said, no, 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 no. You're supposed to say, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked sins, but you still got to love the people. And um, maybe we're doing a transfer here because in the context, you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. So that's a different kind of wickedness, right? Being a wicked, false teacher, false apostle is heinously deliberate. And maybe this isn't talking about somebody who's addicted to drugs or has some sort of uh, gender dysphoria or something like that. So it may be a leap for us to draw the connection exactly the same to our canceling culture. But somehow Jesus is able to say, 
as he says in the Sermon on the Mount, by your fruit you'll recognize him. And there's a, there's a time when you should say no to a person. You cannot say those things here. You cannot lead our people here. You cannot be treated as if everything's okay. Is that not what he says? I, I think so. So um, if this is representative, then this is a call to all churches of all time that there's a time when you have to say no. You can't, you can't, be, you can't be a false prophet and teach Sunday school. Other thoughts about this? It's a pretty high commendation. And it's interesting to me that Jesus says straight up, I know your deeds. Like we said earlier, he's walking among the lampstands. And he knows how hard a work it is. And he knows that we've persevered. So the, these are, you can't work for Jesus without him noticing. So I think it's good. Are we ready to go to the next part? Are you comfortable? Any last comments on this? All right. Okay. And then he says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Wow. So one question rather than two here. What, is, what does this mean? What is Jesus saying? What things do you notice? Joel, you have something? Okay. In light of like the very first uh, verse in the last slide where he com commends their efforts and their work and their deeds and how much they toiled and persevered. I think that sometimes we can work really, really hard for Jesus' sake and we forget that we're working for the sake of Jesus and not for the sake of our church. And I... Um, at different times in my life, I've put in a lot of effort for a church and, and um, was surprised at never feeling burned out or, or discouraged. And looking back, I would attribute that to remembering in those moments that I'm working for the sake of Jesus and not for the sake of this individual body. And there's other times where minimal effort even would result in burnout and frustration and, and fatigue. And I think it become I think it comes from forgetting my first love. You know, we're we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart and our soul and our mind, and that is to say to love Jesus Christ. And out of that proceeds our efforts and our toil and our work and how we persevere and endure and when we get that wrong, that's a big deal, I think. Yeah, this does, this does certainly point out the possibility that we can do all the right deeds and do all the hard work and not 
be loving Jesus. And that's the really big danger that he's pointing out. And I do agree with you, Joel. It's when, when I was dating Tammy, I could pull all-nighters if I had to, right, to drive back and forth to visit her or to stay up late. I mean, one of the reasons we got married is so I could sleep again, right? Because you're, you're in love. You'll do anything. And, so, and yet it was a joy, right? It wasn't because my love for her overwhelmed good sense about living right. And yeah, so, so in that sense, when your heart is in the right place and you're loving Jesus and you're serving his church for his sake, it can feel like you are, ener- you are indeed energized. But you, if, if you separate that and you start to work for it, and for the show and for the program, then you can get mixed up, which I'm afraid maybe Ephesus is doing more. Yeah. If I can admit and confess to you guys, it's been a struggle for me to see how much effort that we put into our ministries and to see, hey, I think our, our preaching ministry between John and DJ is phenomenal. Our small groups, our, our spiritual formation groups are are phenomenal. The content and the discussion is wonderful. And we, I'm discouraged because I see how many people are sitting in our rows and we're less than half full. You know, we were 67 people in the service today, not counting the kids downstairs. And I remember times when we were over 100, you know, and, and so we had more volunteers. We had more more effort, more toil, more this and that that we could do for the kingdom's sake. And I'll admit, I, uh, a propensity to being discouraged. And I think personally that comes from getting out of order, if I were to say so, is that, is that I'm discouraged and instead of immediately lifting my eyes to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and saying, even if we're small, it's worth it. This is still beautiful praise and adoration through our efforts. I, I confess that I just, man, our efforts are for naught. And so I, I just confess that I need to remember this, to not forsake my first love. Even if we're small, Jesus is our first love. Yeah, I think you could have added to your list of things that we do well is our music ministries like way way better than we are size wise i think we we really um we have yeah good reminder chuck worth two or three are gathered the lord is with us so from his perspective we're not small nor insignificant and that's maybe part of the call to faith here and that's what joel is confessing is that even though we do try so hard and work so hard, the fact that it is quality ministry is a gift from Jesus, not something we've drummed up. And the fact that we get to enjoy it even in a small context is a wonderful thing as well. And who knows how small we could be, right? I mean, you know, there's so many ways to look at this and but I agree with you. It sure seems like Jesus deserves to have a packed audience more often than we ever get. And so it would be possible for us to view it. But if Jesus is saying anything here, he's not saying to Ephesus, man, you used to have a big congregation, but now it's small. And he's not saying that. 
He's saying, I see how hard you've worked, but you've forgotten to love me. You forget. You, and it's not forgotten. That's That frightens me is you have forsaken. You've actually turned away from it. You've, you've let it go. Marie wanted to say something then, Larry. Yeah, I see, you know, him describing what might be like an Orthodox church that, you know, um, believes all the right things, has all the right doctrine, um, and, <clears throat> and they are busy. You know, they're helping um, the, the needy, and, um, you know, they are not um, going along with popular opinion, you know, that, that surrounds them in the world. But their first love for all of us was that Jesus is our Savior, you know, our very special one. And um, it's dangerous when we move away from that because the non-Christians as well as other believers sense that 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 um, passion for Jesus is not there. So that's why God felt, felt it was important. It wasn't that long ago we were talking about the parables in Matthew and the, the seed that fell on the rocky soil sprang up quick. That can represent a first love. It's simple, it was responsive, it, it happened quick, but it didn't take root. And then complacency can set in, and their people are doing the work, as others have said here tonight. We get caught in a routine as, I'm just doing this because I know what needs to get done, and we've lost that first love. We're like that wilted flower. It's still a flower. Donna. <clears throat> It's easy to get sidetracked from following and serving Christ first and foremost. It's so easy to look at the programs because you can see them, you can evaluate them, you can tweak them. Uh, missionaries are accountable to the mission board and the mission board wants to see results. And it's so easy to get wrapped up in that and not look at the personal spiritual life of the people serving, the pastors, the missionaries, all of us, because we can so, in business, the business model, everybody gets evaluations, and if you're not pulling your weight at your factory, you know, in trouble, we kind of transfer that over to church and our ministry here or, or overseas, and it's, it just fits in our culture to look outward at what's out there and does it look right or should I tweak it rather than look at your own personal life. And it's easy and I've, I've experienced the fact that we did for a while in Romania, at least I, was pretty involved in the ministry itself and what we were doing and you sort of lost track of my relationship with God should have been in first place. That should have been the thing that people really cared about that should have been the thing that our churches and our mission board cared about, but it wasn't. Yeah, you make a good point that the value system and the ways that we train and learn about at work, our secular world system, the powers of this world, human structures can, 
can overcome a church and and have us forget what it's all about. It's not about building development. It's about spiritual growth and sacrifice and repentance, right? And I <clears throat> I would have to confess in my own heart that I would say that this does not refer to me like it did uh, 10 years ago. I think that I have repented of forsaking my first love. I think I love Jesus more than ever and that by his grace he's revealed to me um, himself more and more and I feel like my ministry is more empowered by what's important to him than trying to accomplish what's important to us. And so that's been a great relief for me. So I don't feel um, particularly convicted about this. I'm just super grateful. But I am, Joel, not, not uh, discouraged by our church growth, but I am, my heart is broken by people that I see who, from my perspective, must not get it. They just must not get who Jesus is or what he's doing. And they just, can, they just, I can't understand why they don't love him enough. And I, they don't need to love him enough to show me something. But, you know, I just, I just so wish that somehow I could, like I'm working with these teenagers right now, for example, and, and they're young kids and they haven't got a lot of maturity, a lot of life hasn't been figured out yet, but the things that turn their crank, the things that really make them motivated are so far away from Jesus. And I just wish there was something I could do is don't you realize how temporal and meaningless and then I think to myself, how many times my pursuits are meaningless compared to the glory of knowing the Lord Jesus, right? And to follow him. And so, um, yeah, we need to repent and do the things we did at first. Remember what Jesus did for us. And the solution here isn't to, oh, add three more tasks to my weekly work list, right? That's not the solution. The solution is to change our heart and go back to the thinking that, Man, the reason I could stay up all night to go see Tammy is because I loved her so much. And that it's that. It's that realize what Jesus has done and, and continue to drink at the well of forgiveness and grace. Any other thoughts on this passage? It frightens me to think that Jesus would come and remove a lampstand. But there are many a churches that's been, they don't exist anymore. That's his prerogative. All right, well, let me get to the <clears throat> last part before we have our closing. So he says, but after all that, you do have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So whoever the Nicolaitans are, they have multiple practices, not just one, and Jesus hates them, hates those practices. And he is comforted 
and encouraged that we do too. And so there is something about wickedness that is so dreadful that we're supposed to hate it. What the practices of the Nicolaitans are is a whole nother study and, and even at the end of the day it still winds up being somewhat speculative. We don't really know. But it seems to be something, a lot of the theories are something to do with uh, secret knowledge, Gnosticism, some sort of inside track worship, uh, you pay to go kind of thing. And so, But whatever it is, it's good to hate some stuff that Jesus hates. So it really, if you put them together, right, if you put us all together, your mind and your doctrine is awesome. Your leadership is awesome. Your heart is not loving the right things. But thank goodness you still hate the right things. Interesting. You're thinking good. You need to love me, but keep on hating the right things. That's an interesting analysis. And then as a final encouragement, whoever has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we are actively asking Jesus to help us right now, right? And then he reminds us, to those who are victorious, that's the Greek word Nike, right? To those who have victory, who conquer, I will give them the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so, are you encouraged by that? Jesus knows where the tree is. He's there now. And he says, if you hang on and you are victorious, it's worth it. It will be worth it. It is worth it. So, um, any final thoughts before we close? Well, don't forsake your first love. You know what the last verse of the book of Ephesians says? Look it up for me. What's the last verse, the last phrase in the book of Ephesians? Paul wrote it. Probably quite a few years before this event when John saw this. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Blessed are those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love, an undying love as the NIV translates it. So the point is, even Paul seems to know, right, that Ephesus needs to remember to love the Lord Jesus with an undying love. And don't let it go away. Interesting. Father in heaven, help us to love you with an undying love we know that we would only do so because you loved us first and that you give us the grace to do so. And so help us to see what you've done for us, Lord Jesus, and help us to see how great you are and how incredible your sacrifice and your wisdom and your goodness and your strength, and that you would love us that way and that we would be able to love you back. It's because of what you've done that we are grateful and that we do love you and we thank you for the love you've shed into our hearts. In your name, amen.